if you've got really, really good people, genuine people, and great communicators, passionate, ethical, honest, and looking to do something that's good for the world, they've got my time and attention. And then if the idea is fantastic and makes sense, and it's something that you can explain to people and they can get, then I'm really, really into this whole thing. And at the end of the day, if it's going to be better for the planet, what we're doing here, that's it. I mean, I got three boxes. If you tick all three, I'm in. I'll give you my time and my money. And I love giving my time to Little Kitchen Academy. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. For most of the great challenges we encounter in life, there is a solution, whether it's been discovered yet or not. Now, there are a lot of people who will tell you why something can't be done. Too hard, too expensive, too many obstacles, and on and on and on. The list of why you can't is a lengthy one. But hopefully you know people from the other category, the ones who are curious enough, confident enough, and committed enough to embrace those challenges and find solutions. Ian McDonald is one of those people. His career has been anything but conventional, and his refusal to accept the status quo has led to creative innovations in multiple industries. Since he was first introduced to the concept of Little Kitchen Academy a few years ago, Ian has supported its evolution on several levels, including as an investor and an advisory board member. And while he's always had an ability to spot a great idea, it was his eye for fabulous footwear that led to his affiliation with Little Kitchen Academy, as you'll soon hear. I looked at your background and it is so diverse and interesting to me that I really didn't know where to start. So here's where I'm going to start with you. When you were a little boy, what did you want to be when you grew up, Ian? Wow. Interesting question. I think in some ways I wanted to be what my father was. My father passed away when I was very, very young and he was a medical doctor, general practitioner. And I always heard all these amazing things about him from people as I was growing up. So I think in many ways, being a medical doctor was in my brain. But, you know, situations changed. We ended up, after he passed away, being very, very poor and struggling to get by in a lot of ways. So I didn't end up having much of an education. In fact, I have, <laughs> despite everything I've done, I have a grade 11 education and was working full time from the age of 14, quite frankly. So when you took those early jobs in your teenage years, what impression did they have on you as to what you ended up doing later in your business life? I think that I owe a great deal to those early jobs. I really, really do. I was really bored in school, in high school in particular, wasn't getting much from it. One of those introverted, really shy kids. They didn't have a lot of options for kids in schools in those days. You know, it was just sort of middle of the road. If you were really bright or if you were not so bright, you just sort of got lumped into the back of the class. And so there was really no programming f for anybody. So I was accelerated in school, but really nowhere to go with it. But at the age of 14, I took a full-time job as the night supervisor for the local YMCA. So I would leave high school at three o'clock, start at the YMCA at 3.30 and finish up there between 10.30 and 11 at night, Monday through Friday. So I really ran the entire operation 
at night. So you had all these courses going on, like driver's education. You had judo, karate, everything you could possibly imagine that goes through YMCA in this great big complex. And I basically ran the whole front desk, did all the registrations, inquiries, information, did all the cash up every night, put everything in the safe. Scariest part, of course, as a 14-year-old was turning off all the lights and putting the alarms off, you know, by yourself (laughs) late at night in a great big building. But I learned the most important and valuable lessons about communication, you know, speaking to people and listening to people and looking after their concerns and making sure that everything was was up to speed for them, that they were happy with their experience at the YMCA. And I was really, really proud of that job. And it put some money in my bank account and taught me more than I learned in high school, that's for sure. So was the driver to get that job simply to get a few bucks in your pocket? Was it the athletic aspect of the YMCA? Was it the responsibility? What drove you to that position? I think I was always attracted to the Y. Maybe today doesn't have the same kind of impact on every community, but when I was a kid growing up, the YMCA was where you learned everything, you know, or you picked up certain athletic skills or learned about gosh knows what. I mean, they had everything in that place. And it was kind of a community hub, right? The place you could feel you could go to and feel comfortable in and and it was very familiar. So I think that just there was the fact that, you know, I needed to earn my own money to pay for everything. And in our household, the rule was pretty much at the age of 16, you know, you took your suitcase and you were out the door, you know, so it was a way to kind of put some skills together and put some funds together so that at 16, I was gone. Now, I'm not sure where you grabbed your suitcase and headed off to at the age of 16, but I do know that in 1988, you began a career that was heavily involved with the Olympics. I don't want to skip over the steps in between. So how did you get from the YMCA to the Olympics in Calgary in 1988? Yeah, I think I took pretty much every uh, job you could get your hands on to keep going. But skiing was something that myself and some of my friends were really passionate about. Did a lot of skiing up in the Laurentians, north of Montreal. And then a couple of us loaded ourselves into an old beater of a car and drove out to see the Rocky Mountains. Didn't know what they were, but we'd heard about them. Got as far as Banff and, you know, just fell in love. I mean, these mountains and this outdoor pursuits and great ski hills and something that wasn't ice to ski on just blew our minds. It was beautiful. So end up spending with some friends. We spent over three years just living and working kinds of odd jobs in Banff. And one of those jobs there was actually being the first employee to work with Mike Wigley, who ended up starting, you know, Wigley Healthy Skiing. He was one of the founders of the whole exercise of getting a helicopter and going into the middle of nowhere on these fabulous mountains and then skiing down. So I was involved in the early days working with Mike, a brilliant guy and ended up accomplishing so much in his life. And then I ended up helping to work as an area rep for some of the ski products, things that had to be done with special events or race services programs, things like that. And I was even doing that at Whistler. This is when Whistler was just one ski resort and a dirt mud parking lot, a one chairlift. And in the corner of the parking lot, they had a phone booth, believe it or not. And I remember one day coming down from the mountain at a ski camp that we were working on the summer. Somebody said, you know, the phone's off the hook. The phone had rung at the phone booth and it's for you, Ian. And I go over there and I pick up the phone and go, yeah, how can I help you? Yeah, this is Jim Garland. I'm the new president of Solomon North America. And Solomon, you know, was one of the companies in ski bindings, boot skis. It's very, very well known today. And he said, I want to hire you. I've left you a plane ticket at the airport in Vancouver. And when you get a chance, let's fly out and have lunch in Montreal. I thought this was a prank call, obviously, but turned out to be true. Went out there and met with him. He hired me to take over the rep of Ontario. 
which I did as a young lad. But again, one of these sort of serendipitous things in life, you know, I don't think I've ever actually applied for a job. They've just sort of shown up and I've taken them. One of the things that Solomon did to their credit in those days is out of their operations headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, they did a very, very intensive six-week summer program to train new employees. I learned an incredible amount again through this situation because they had people like speaking coaches. You know, I didn't even know what that was, public speaking. And so they would take you through an intensive program on how you could do public speaking and then having to do that in front of the whole crowd that was there. It was just a whole myriad of skills that they wanted to pass on to you. And I didn't know what an MBA was, but a lot of these folks that were there were young MBA graduates from some of the big Ivy League schools in the United States. So it sort of planted the seed that there's a thing called marketing, which didn't know what that was. Went back, did my job in Ontario, busted my butt, and did everything I could to get the product sales up. Because in those days, Solomon products were not the best. You know, they really hadn't innovated to the degree that they have today. So it was early, early days for the company. And I started doing some things because I was left on my own to this giant territory that I didn't realize you weren't supposed to be doing. And in fact, inadvertently, I worked with a company that was just starting to create these custom ski tukes, handmade in the basement with a bunch of people. And with that, I had, because the weather was so damn cold, I had a bunch of tukes made in the Solomon colors with the big Solomon S on the front of it. And I was out doing area service reps and to pro races that were happening with some of the world famous racers from Europe and America and Canada up in the Laurentians and gave all these guys and gals these tukes that I had made. And it saved the day because it was minus 20 Celsius, everybody's freezing. And when you're ski racing, you're not wearing a whole lot of stuff. Anyway, so it ended up that they loved these things. And on the podium, which went worldwide, all the media for this thing, all the winners, were all wearing these Solomon toques. Because when you win and you hold up, you can't see your skis or what bindings you have or anything else. But on your forehead was the giant Solomon S. And it just blew up. I got reprimanded by the worldwide <laughs> CEO of Solomon for taking my own initiatives. But really what happened there was I ended up inadvertently creating the very, very first merchandising program for Solomon. And merchandising went on to become one of the biggest features of the company. And I ended up getting a job in the marketing department of Solomon the next year. And within three years as a small group in the marketing department, we took the market share of Solomon products from 17% to 54%. It was, yeah, a real blitz what we did. And it was a lot of fun, really dynamic. They wanted me to move on and get into running the sales program. But I was so delighted with marketing that I left them to try and further my education. Understand at this point in time, I've never taken a marketing course or read a book, but it turns out that I had a bit of a creative skill. So I went to this very large advertising agency in Montreal and said that I wanted to work for them because I want to learn what it was like to be on the other side rather than just being the client. And they said, we don't have any jobs here for you. We've heard about you, but there's no jobs. And I said, well, I've saved up enough money for six months. So I'll work here for free for six months. And they just laughed and they said, well, great. Well, here's a desk in the corner. And six months later, I was the general manager for the whole agency, which was the largest agency in Canada in those days. So I spent a couple of years with them, kind of learning the background on that. But I mean, I just really have kind of followed my nose and my gut about what I wanted to learn, what I wanted to do, and you know, went from there. I ended up running a major ski resort in the United States after that, because I wanted to learn all about that side of the business. Grueling, difficult, <laughs> but managed to save that ski resort, which was called J Peak in the day from basically going under. We managed to revive it and get it back on its feet. And then I kind of drifted back west again to sort of Calgary, Banff side of things and helped some guys there that were looking to put together some of the bid for the Calgary 88 Winter Olympic Games. That bid ended up becoming successful. I was going to leave there and was hoping to pick up a job with 
an early days Nike in Beaverton, Oregon, in their marketing department. When I got a call from some folks, a husband and wife, school teacher and housewife, and she had started sewing some skiwear for their family in the basement of their home. And they called it Sun Ice. This would have been in about uh, 1983. And they'd heard about me and what I'd done for Solomon, some other things, and knew that I was in town working on the Olympic Development Program for Calgary, and said, you know, would I join the company and take over basically all the operations, sales, marketing, everything of that business? And I said, well, you're so tiny. I mean, they really had nothing much going on in the day. But I was intrigued by the fact that I had always worked in hard goods, you know, skis and boots and bindings and stuff. And that when I thought about it, nothing had ever been done for the other side of the ski shop, which had all the soft goods in it you know, the clothing and accessories, and felt that there was probably something that could be done there. So anyways, they talked me into it, ended up joining Sun Ice. And I said, you know, there's only a couple of conditions here. I'll join the company, but you can't question anything that I do. And you can't question the budget. And they said, fine. So really what we did was created a brand for soft goods in the ski industry that hadn't existed before. Did all kinds of really innovative, fun things like training and education programs for soft goods. Because I felt that the more that people knew about something. These are pretty much minimum wage people that are working in ski shops in those days. And so the more that people know and more comfortable they are with something, the more they believe in the story about a product, the more confident they're going to be in the product and the better off they're going to be able to sell it and communicate that to the consumer. So did very, very comprehensive education training programs, did a lifetime warranty on the product. Anything happened to it, we take it back and repair it or replace it. Did all kinds of things because the last thing I wanted was products to be discounted. And that's really what the cycle of life was in for a product in a ski shop in those days. Store buys it, they buy a little bit extra, they get a volume discount. Rather than keeping the extra margin, they would just discount the product. And with the discount, there goes your brand. That was my belief anyways in those days. And so we made sure that I put a great deal of time and effort into the marketing of the brand, building the brand story, sponsoring all the best athletes we could in the country with the product and educating their staff making great point of sale display information and training, and even got to a program where, because I didn't want to discount it, but wanted to create a value added, I convinced all the leading ski resorts in the country that they would honor the first day skiing for free if you wore a new sun ice jacket to that ski resort, which was a pretty big value. And we were able then to really, you know, you could take that jacket over there that's $50, $60 off, or you can take the sun ice, which has got all these wonderful features and people know all about it and they want you to have it. And you get your first day skiing for free. I got to the point where this brand got so big and so crazy that I was getting phone calls day and night from people, you know, school boards everywhere saying you, you have to send a note out to all these kids that they cannot wear their sun ice jackets in the classrooms. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, they refuse to put them in their lockers in the schools. Why is that? I don't understand. Because they get stolen. And so they're insisting on wearing the sun ice jacket in the classroom. And I said, well, I, I'd like to say it's a problem, but I'm pretty excited about all this, quite frankly. <laughs> and so we had all this kind of stuff going. It became this cult brand. I think we grew at wholesale from about well under a million dollars to three years later where we were at $45 million at wholesale. And at the time, we were bigger than a lot of other you know, major big, big brands today. We were, we were really big. And that's when I went to the Calgary Organizing Committee for the 88 Winter Olympic Games and said, I want Sun Ice to be the clothing sponsor of the Games. Super nice guys that were running the whole show there. And they said, look, Ian, love what you've done. But at the time, we were still pretty tiny. We hadn't, we hadn't grown to those kind of numbers I was talking about. It was early days. And they said, you know, there's lots and lots of way bigger companies that would like this job. 
And although you're local and everything else, and you got a great brand, but you're not big enough, you can't handle the volumes that we need to do here. Because it's the torch relay, it's all the volunteers, it's all the media, you know, we need like 40, 50,000 uniforms. And I said, okay, well, what if I came back and I was the biggest? Would you go for that? And they just laughed and said, if you come back and you're the biggest clothing brand out there, then sure, we'll deal with you. So I said, great. So I got an airplane and I went to see 3M Corporation out of um, Minneapolis who do thin slate insulation amongst millions of other things they do. And I said, you know, we want to put your insulation in these jackets for Calgary 88 for the Winter Games. We want you to be part of this program. We want you to be our partner. I said, Ian, sounds great. We're your partner. We'll do it. Then I flew to New Jersey and met with DuPont Chemical Corporation, who amongst other things invented nylon and make nylon clothing, outerwear, fabric. And spoke to DuPont and said, you know, really want you to be our partner. We want you to provide the fabric for all these garments. Fantastic idea. We're your partner. And then nearby went to what was a medical company at the day, a company called Gore-Tex, that were doing implants that you could use artificially for the body. At the same time, they had just developed a film out of Gore-Tex and were using it to make waterproof, breathable membranes. And they said, we want to feature Gore-Tex in all these products as well. We want you to be our partner. And they said, sounds great. We're in. We're your partner. Flew back to Calgary, walked into the office of the organizing committee and said, we are now officially a multi-multi-billion dollar corporation. And we want to be your partner and be the official supplier of clothing for the games in Calgary. And they said, all right, you got it. And so that's how a tiny little company ended up providing all those uniforms in Calgary in 1988. The work that I did there was what became the seeds for my own company. I left Sun Ice after the games in 88, figured it was time to kind of branch out and wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I started doing a bunch of consulting around the world for different brands, Porsche, BMW, MasterCard, and things like that on marketing activities and creativity. Then I got a phone call from a lot of the sponsors of the games that I'd worked with in Calgary 88, saying that you know I'd provided them uniforms as well. That would have been 3Ms, the Coca-Colas, the Sports Illustrateds, it was ABC broadcasters in those days, just a whole myriad of companies as well. And they said, you know, we've got it would be 1992 coming up. We've got the games in Albertville in France. We want you to do our uniforms. And I said, uniforms? They said, yeah, yeah, we need something to wear over there. And I never say no. So I said, sure. And started a company called Moving Products. And Moving Products was designed as a company to provide uniform outfitting and logistics services for the Olympic Games worldwide. Very, very bold aspirations. The company was really just me and a rented car in Albertville and a rented little warehouse where I imported goods from various manufacturers from around the world, made sure they're all logoed and labeled up properly, went through all the Olympic you know, qualifications to do all that, and did it all myself. I'd pack all these things up according to people's sizes and deliver them to their hotel rooms, get them outfitted, and get them going. And people seemed to love it, worked my butt off. And they all said, well, I guess we'll see you in Barcelona in a couple of months at the summer games there. So I went, what? And so suddenly, you know, it was just, it just kept rolling from one thing to the next. And in the beginning, everybody said, you know, we don't really need to use your services. And this is not something we would ever, uniforms, how important is this? Merchandise with Olympic rings on it, who cares? But we kept going, kept going, kept working it and kept providing a level of service that nobody had seen and a level of quality and innovation that nobody ever experienced before. And before you knew it, we had created a category that became somewhat essential in the operations of staging the games. It wasn't long before we were doing well over 100,000 special one-of-a-kind uniforms 
for each Olympic Games and millions and millions of pieces of merchandise. I mean, we were it on the planet. We were the source for Olympic merchandise for pretty much 24 years and 13 consecutive Olympic Games until London in 2012, when I decided that, you know, we'd all had enough, had a great team. And by that time, I was already well into designing and building liquidity, which became the winery that I helped found in Okanagan Valley here in British Columbia, a little town called Okanagan Falls. Again, a business I knew absolutely nothing about, but brought together a really talented team. And what I thought was needed in the wine business when we started liquidity was that I didn't think that people were just all about going wine tasting. You know, you can only drink so much wine. And quite frankly, you go to a lot of wineries and you taste four or five wines and might be lucky if one of them you like. And how many days in a row can you do that? But my thought on this was that a winery needed to be turned into a destination experience. And so I'm a frustrated designer. So I designed all the buildings at Liquidity, all the landscaping. I wanted to control the environment from the ground up. I wanted you to come through the front gates and suddenly realize that you're somewhere different than you had expected. And I took it all the way through this long, long driveway through gardens and ponds and massive sculptures and flowers and beautiful buildings and up to finally the area for the public tasting room. And this place had just the most killer view that you've ever seen. And so I designed it in such a way that you couldn't see the view until you got to the front door. And the front door was designed as a viewfinder, as a lens that was, you know, 12 feet by 12 feet of glass, a square. And then a long, long hallway at the other end was another 12 foot square of glass that looked out on the view. And people were just stopped in their tracks. And they came inside. And then from there, we really curated their experience. We had this amazing farm to table, little tiny restaurant, this beautiful outdoor patio, infinity edge pools, brought in this young chef who just blew it up. He ended up having one of the top 100 restaurants in Canada. And you got to say, we're in the middle of nowhere here. Designed the taste room that it was just really kind of felt cool and intimate and really design friendly and forward. And then I'm a big passionate art collector. And I plastered the walls everywhere with my art collection and art from other artists that I knew. We brought in all kinds of shows from people to the point where, you know, it just became something that was word of mouth. I made sure that for liquidity, we weren't out there advertising and marketing it. I really wanted it to be an organic experience. That if somebody then has taken that photo and put it on Facebook or tweeted it or Instagrammed or done whatever, that they're sharing something special that they've discovered with their friends and then their friends want to experience it as well. Yeah, so we, you know, my God, we started out at nothing. And in a couple of years, we were kind of one of the hottest boutique wineries going. But you've got to have quality. You've got to have great product to back it up. It had a fantastic winemaker, Allison, part of the great team that we had there. And, you know, within a couple of years, I'm still amazed at it. But we won top honors for our Chardonnay at the Chardonnay de Monde in France. It's the worldwide competition to determine the best Chardonnay in the world, which was great for us. Got all kinds of publicity about it. Had we been a winery in California and done that, they probably would have made a movie about us. But as a little tiny hole in the wall in Canada, we took top honors in the world for our Chardonnay. And then the year after, two years in a row, we took a gold medal at the Mondial de Pinot in Switzerland. And we were the only North American winery, Pinot Noir, to ever receive a gold medal two years in a row. So all that kind of stuff. We tried to innovate everywhere. Always it was about the experience and about the consumer. And if it wasn't for liquidity, I never would have met Brian and Felicity. So that's how it all circles back finally to Little Kitchen Academy. 
Well, it's beautiful. You provided my segue for me. And that is a long and layered tale that takes you from Montreal growing up all the way to the Okanagan, but all over the world in between. And you mentioned movies. I suppose if we were talking movies, it might be cool runnings in 1988 with Calgary through sideways with what you're doing now. You mentioned Felicity and Brian and Liquidity Wines is the reason you met. How did that interaction first take place? Yeah. So it was part of the design and building of Liquidity because I had some great shareholders in the company as well. And so I built this VIP executive suite up on top of the tasting room facilities. And it had this with about 2,000 square feet, designer Italian kitchen, two king-size ensuited bedrooms, private patios, private swimming pool, views forever, fabulous place. And everybody wanted to rent it. And I said, it's not for rent. How do you get to stay here? The only way you can get to stay in the liquidity VIP suite is if you have bid on it at a charity. So what I would do every year, I would select all kinds of charities in various cities and say, for one of your grand prizes, I will give you an all-inclusive stay to auction off at liquidity. So two-night stay, chef's dinners, wine pairings with our winemaker, everything we can do for you. Red carpet, done. And so these things ended up becoming really, really precious. And again, it was the only way you could get to liquidity and stay there was to do this at auction. Brian, as you know, has been really heavily involved over the years in Heart and Stroke. Took it in there as one of the auction prizes. Brian and Felicity, with a couple of their friends, bid on it. And they came to liquidity. Now, I didn't know who the recipients were that weekend that were coming in. I was just working as usual in and around the facilities and was at the tasting bar and greeting people and talking. And this woman comes up to the tasting bar to sample some wines. And I look down and she's got the coolest kicks on, like beautiful, beautiful shoes on. And I say, wow, I really, really like your shoes. They are very cool. And she said, why, thank you. Thank you. And we started chatting away and talking about stuff. She's very, very friendly and open. And she said, well, how come you're here? I said, well, I work here. She said, well, what do you do? I'm, I'm the founder. You're the guy? Yeah. Well, we're staying here. We're staying in the executive suite. We're so excited. We'd love it here. And I said, oh my gosh, I got to meet you guys. Out to the patio. There they're all drinking a bottle of wine. I meet Brian and Felicity and all their friends. And I literally spent most of the weekend that they were there hanging out when they were just so welcoming, such wonderful people, so genuine. And we got to talking about stuff. And I was asking, you know, like, Brian was just in between things. He was wrapping up stuff with flip-flop chops. And I was asking Felicity a bunch, a bunch of things. And she mentioned this idea that she had, Little Kitchen Academy. And she took me through the idea and asked me what I thought about it because, you know, she learned my background in marketing and stuff at that point. You know, and she told me about this the other day. She said, you know, I still remember that conversation with you when you got so excited about my idea and you told me that I had to do it. And I did. I said, this is brilliant. It really is. And I said, if you're doing this and you need some money, call me. So I was one of the first investors in there as well. I didn't invest in Little Kitchen Academy because of what my rate of return might be. I got involved in Little Kitchen Academy because the concept was just so genuine. It was just common sense. You know, it's so hard to find an idea that resonates the minute that you hear it. You know what I'm talking about, Scott, and you've talked to a lot of people about this. Somebody explains, you know, elevator pitch, little kitchen academy, and you go, I've got it. This has to work and it has to work and it's going to be good for so many people and what it can do for children, how it can help. Yeah, I was hooked right from the very beginning. It takes a couple things to get me hooked. First, it's about the people. If you've got really, really good people 
genuine people and great communicators, passionate, ethical, honest, and looking to do something that's good for the world, they've got my time and attention. And then if the idea is fantastic and makes sense and is something that you can explain to people and they can get, then I'm really, really into this whole thing. And at the end of the day, if it's going to be better for the planet, what we're doing here, that's it. I mean, I got three boxes. If you take all three, I'm in. I'll give you my time and my money. And I love giving my time to Little Kitchen Academy. It's a creative vortex. You get in there and there's just ideas flying, innovation. Everything is open for discussion. Every idea is chased. Anything that's any good, they grab it and they run with it and don't let go until they've delivered on it. They've built this team that is just so passionate and believes 110% in what they're doing. That has to be the model for success. You mentioned the team and the network of people that were curious like you, had the light bulb go on like you, and that is literally why we started this podcast. And it's been a little over a year now since you... Me, my wife, Felicity and Brian sat in Felicity and Brian's living room and we talked through a number of ideas about what this podcast should look like, how it should feel. And it's hard to believe that we're already more than 20 episodes in here, Ian. What has this become, the podcast itself, compared to what we originally envisioned or what you originally envisioned? Well, I have to give credit to you on this, Scott, because, you know, we we sat in that room, we talked about it, and I didn't grasp it at the time fully because I just knew there was so many podcasts everywhere in this world on everything. And I wasn't sure how this could differentiate itself and have its own unique feel and be something that people would want to listen to. And, you know, from the get-go, when you, when you shared that little clip at that sit-down of your daughter introducing it, I just went, oh my God. That just grabbed my heartstrings, you know, because it's so real, so genuine, because it ties it back. Little Kitchen Academy is not about us. It's about kids, you know, and you pull that all together. And then when I heard the first couple of them too, what you've done with it, it's genuine. You know, you get a good feeling from it. And again, it's so important that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the kids. I mean, that's what Little Kitchen Academy is really. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but the podcast itself is about the people and sharing these stories and how they connect back to that organic experience for those children. And one of the things we talked about that night, and it's something that is a connective thread through Little Kitchen Academy and has now become part of the connective tissue of this podcast was, hey, let's have a recurring question that every guest gets asked. So I'm going to ask it to you now. That idea from that night stuck. What is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen, Ian, and why? (laughs) There's a bit of a story to this one because Felicity has asked this for quite a long time, as you know. I always said to her, Fear. Fear was the one ingredient in my kitchen. And we always just laughed about it. That being because I have been on the road for most of my life and therefore been eating out for most of my life. And food has just been kind of this accessory on the side that put fuel in me and keep me going. But what happened with COVID, I think happened to me and happened to a lot of people where I was in the kitchen now and restaurants were closed. You couldn't do anything. I wasn't traveling anymore. And it it was time to really experience the kitchen and get in there. And I think that I had to learn now that getting in the kitchen is about just having an open mind and just getting in there, man, just grabbing whatever was around. And and really in my kitchen, it's not plentiful. You have to get quite creative to kind of pull something together. I'm kind of the, uh, the master of the one pan dinner. You know, if it can all go in one pan and be made, I'm your guy. So I have spent more time in a kitchen in the last couple of years than I have in the whole rest of my life. And it has been a lot of fun and an eye-opening thing. 
there is so much that can be done in a kitchen and so much joy that you can give to other people when you're cooking. It's sharing love, not just sharing food. And I think that this comes back again to the concept that Felicity created with Little Kitchen Academy that kids from the age of three on, you know, are hands-on preparing food and they're doing it for themselves. And you sit down and you have a communal table and you share that food together. And I just think that's an experience that, you know, was maybe back a generation or two ago. It's not always the same today. And I think it's a magic feeling and it's critical, I think, to early childhood development. I think this is really, really important. I agree. And my sense that I get from listening to the way that your career has developed and the interaction you've had with people over the years, specifically with Felicity and Brian, as you teed up, is that you've had a lot of those experiences around a table or over a glass of wine, despite the fact that you weren't the cook all the time. How important have those interactions been in those intimate moments that have led you the directions you've gone? Well, I think, you know, sitting around a table and having food or beverages, wine, whatever it may be, is when you tend to relax, you know, and you tend to get closer and you tend to get more focused. I think you can listen better and you can kind of just get into the mood and the feeling of it a lot easier. And I think from that, for me, at least personally, that's when a lot of these creative moments happen. That whole frontal cortex just starts to open up a little bit, right? And the ideas start flowing. And in those moments, there aren't bad ideas. It's just thoughts and that people can start to spin around that table. Things start to happen. And it's amazing what comes out of it. Every time I sit around the table with Brian and Felicity and people like yourself and others, there hasn't been a time when we haven't had like an amazing aha moment and gone, that's great. Yes, yes, yes. We got to do that. And off it goes. The beauty of Little Kitchen Academy and that team there is it goes from idea to action almost instantly. I say this to Brian and Felicia all the time, I mean, of all the companies that I've been involved in and still involved in today, no company communicates more effectively, more clearly, and more often than Little Kitchen Academy. They've really kept a finger on the pulse, and they've really kept their brand true to form. They do not deviate. And there's so much temptation in this world to do that. They have ignored that. They've resisted it. And I think that has what's built the true character of the brand for the Kitchen Academy. Well, and if you think of how children operate, really, it harkens back to that. And this is a child-led experience. And the instructors and Felicity and Brian and everybody involved learns as much or more from the students than the students actually end up learning from them. And children don't have barriers constructed. They are wide open, blank slates. And I know you know that. Congratulations are in order because you've recently become a father. How are the early days treating you? <laughs> Other than lack of sleep, it's amazing. Little Nolan is, what is he now, almost six months old now. He just smiles and he's absorbing everything around him in the world. I can just see all these neurons are connecting by the millions every minute. I'm really excited to see how he develops and where he goes with his life. And I must say, because of Felicity and Brian and Little Kitchen Academy, I'm way more understanding of what Montessori teachings are and what they mean. And a lot of those teachings will be involved in Nolan's life. The day he turns three, he's going to Little Kitchen Academy. Every time I go to a class and see these little tiny kids in there, three-year-olds, and I see the videos, it chokes me up. It really, really does. And I so much want that for him, and I cannot wait until he gets a chance to do it. 
It won't be that long. Believe me, the days are long, but the years are short when you're raising children. At least that's been my experience so far. And I do want to tie this back to where we began, which was when you were a little boy and you were thinking of what might lie ahead and just the wonderful adventurous opportunities that have come for you. What do you take from your career and your life lived to this point that you would hope your son takes from you and that he incorporates into his own one day? I think just be open to everything around you. I think that, you know, I've always had the ability to kind of be in the moment and try and be aware of what's happening. Try and listen to people, ask questions, learn from what's going on around me, and then be really, really open to what experiences come out of that and not have any kind of preconceived notions. Maybe he'll decide from an early age this is what he wants to do with his life. But I think life sometimes happens to you and you have to make the best of that. You know, and if you've got the right skills and if you've got the right personality, whatever comes to you, you'll make the best of it and you'll learn from it and you'll grow from it. That's all I could ask for him really in his life. Well, it has certainly worked and then some for you, Ian. This has been a fascinating conversation, one that we could continue for hours, quite frankly, and maybe we'll do that over a wine here soon. Thank you very much for taking the time today and being open to this conversation. It's been a great pleasure, Scott. Thanks a lot. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 